Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of New Books Network. This is your host, Morteza Hajizadeh, and today I'm here with Dr. Peter Good. Dr. Peter Good published a fascinating book with I.B. Torres. The book is called The East India Company in Persia, Trade and Cultural Exchange in the 18th Century. And I'm very honored to have him here today to talk with us about his book. Peter, welcome to New Books Network. Hi, Morteza. Thank you very much for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Uh, Peter, this is a very, very niche topic. Uh, East India Company has been everywhere, but you've uh, taught, you, you, your research topic is completely different. Uh, and I must admit that when I came across the book, I thought it was, you know, the usual kind of research about how East Indian Company has exploited things here and there. But this is a different topic that you've chosen. So before talking about that, can you please tell us a little about yourself, your field of expertise and how you became interested in history and why you decided to choose such a niche topic for which I guess you had to also learn some Persian. Yeah, so I started out my undergraduate degree and my master's were in Arabic and Middle Eastern studies with Persian and then Middle East history at the University of Exeter. Uh, I started out, I guess, as a um, uh, interesting in interesting languages. Yeah, I spent my time learning Arabic and Persian and then gradually realized that while I enjoyed the language side of things, I was more and more interested in the history and culture, especially of Iran. Uh, so I did my PhD uh, as a joint project with uh, the University of Essex and the British Library, looking at the Persian factory records of the East India Company. Uh, this was part of a project that was set up by uh, Mark Frost, my PhD supervisor, and uh, Margaret Makepeace, who's the, uh, uh, or I think she's the, you know, her title is curator of uh, the East India office, uh, the India office records rather. So the project was basically, uh, uh, they, they came, came up with the fact that these records, the, the Persian factory records, uh, which is IORG, uh, the, well, for in the IORG, IORG, um, <laughs> it's gone. Um, 29, that's it. The, the, given how much time I spent with them, I should really remember. Uh, yeah, the, the IORG 29 series of records basically never been used for anything very much. That all of these histories of the East India Company look at the letter books in IORG 3. Um, they look at IOR E3, sorry. Uh, they look at India. You know, they focus on India. But then the, there's this whole story of the East India Company in the Gulf that just it never really gets looked at. Uh, so they formulated this idea of having a PhD student who turned out to be me uh, to go through and basically try and tell at least part of that story. And for me, it was it was really fascinating. So I came at it from, from a sort of Persian studies background and Persian history background and uh, wanted to try and tell the story of this interaction between the East India Company and the Safavid Empire and the successors of the Safavid Empire, uh, so Nader Shah and um, you know, the Afghan interregnum that happened between uh, 1722 and about 1733. You know, so tell the story of well, what was it like to be uh, an East India Company merchant in Persia, first of all, this sort of this story of, uh, of of what it was like to be one of them. And I think that, again, that's a story that hadn't really been told, but also trying to use these sources to tell uh, a, a or give a Persian perspective or a local perspective of dealing with the company. So while this is a story, uh, if you like, a, a book about the East India Company and its activities in Persia, 
very much what I wanted to do was to find the local voices in this archive and in this record and see how we could um, let them speak as, you know, they could refer to them as subalterns, this idea of subaltern studies. Um, but looking at this archive in a really new and uh, innovative way, rather than just, as I say, um, telling another story about what the East India Company bought and sold and how, uh, you know, English... Uh, English merchants arrive and then all of a sudden history starts. Uh, I didn't want to tell that story. I wanted to tell something different. So that's basically how the project came about and how the, how the book uh, came out of my PhD. Um, yeah. yeah. Is this uh, archive publicly accessible? I'm kind of curious myself to have a look if I can have access to digital archive, but I don't think it's digitized. It's in the process of being digitized right now. I'm not sure whether they fully finished it. So it's IRG 29. It's the Qatar Digital Library project. Uh, certainly have been have been digitizing parts of it, but whether it's fully available on their platform yet, I'm not sure. So the the, the archive was in Qatar, you said, or no? So the archives in the British Library in in London, but the the Qatar Digital Library have been doing this this very long term. Gosh, must be for about fifteen years now. Um, process of digitizing India Office records. It started out being centered just on Qatar, then on the wider Gulf, and then you know basically they're now they're now digitizing large parts of the India Office records of you know uh, of all the areas of the essentially the Western Indian Ocean in India. So on their platform, um, they they have quite a few of these now, if not all mm. of them. I think last year I was just checking their website and there were loads and loads of pictures and old records and documents related to Persian Gulf and uh, and and also Iran. And I'm not a historian, but I was just fascinated just going through the documents to see what is there. <laughs> uh, let's talk about East Indian Company. So can you, well, I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with it. Uh, generally speaking, can you briefly introduce this, this uh, company what it was, when it was established, and why or and when did they decide to enter Persia in the 18th century? So the East India Company was founded uh, in 1600 by a group of merchants in London who essentially wanted to uh, well set up a, a joint stock company where they could trade with the Indies as, as broadly defined, uh, basically everywhere east of um uh, east of the Cape of Good Hope, I suppose. Um, and they originally set their sights on the Spice Islands, so the, the, this area of Indonesia where nutmeg and mace is grown. And But through competition with the Dutch and also the Portuguese, to a lesser extent, they lost access to, uh, uh, yeah, to the spices themselves and decided instead to trade in India. And what they basically found is that uh, English heavy woolen cloth didn't actually sell very well in tropical India for some reason, uh, and that uh, yeah they didn't do a brisk trade in in the in the goods that they brought with them from Europe. So instead had to had to pay for whatever they bought in silver, which uh, upset the sort of mercantilist um, economic theories of the time. So. What they did instead was they looked at what uh, what Indian yeah, Indian merchants bought and Indian consumers bought, uh, and then also at other sources of, of silver, so potential sources of income. And one of these uh, that they lighted upon in the 1610, 1616, um, was, was Persia. 
and the reason for that is that um, the you know, the Safavid uh, state uh, and Iran sit on quite, most of the the major cities of of the empire sit on quite a high plateau, which means that they have very hot summers but very cool winters with with strong winds. And that actually there was a significant market for this heavy woolen cloth that uh, that was produced in England and shipped all the way around to uh, to the Indian Ocean. So what the company essentially planned on doing was selling uh, English cloth in Persia, being paid for it in silver, and then taking that silver to India to purchase uh, Indian goods or to uh, other ports, so for example, Bantam in Java, to buy pepper, nutmeg, other spices. They also, uh, once they'd arrived, uh, got a real taste for the idea of buying Persian silk in large quantities. Uh, and there's a long history of uh, East India Company merchants desperately trying to make a profit out of the silk trade. But uh, in many ways, that was that was doomed to failure for, for a variety of reasons. But uh, the major event really was in 1622, where the East India Company, in an alliance with uh, Shah Abbas I, the, uh, Abbas the Great uh, of, of Persia, launched a joint campaign against the Portuguese island of Hormuz. And uh, after a campaign which happened, oh, would have been 400 years ago last year, um, they there was a great conference at Oxford, which I was lucky lucky to attend, where we, we talked about the history of Hormuz 400 years on. Um, they uh, displaced the Portuguese from Hormuz, breaking the hold of the Portuguese empire in the Persian Gulf. And in recognition for this, the company was first of all granted uh, a treaty, but then secondly, uh, and more importantly, a farman, a, a, a document, a grant of privileges from Shahbaz I to, uh, well, a farman, uh, basically, it's not a treaty. So this is often how it's been mischaracterized. This is some kind of uh, two equal powers, um, you know, making an agreement and then you know, having to stick to it. Uh, a farman isn't that. A farman is, a, is, as I say, a grant of privileges. It's something that the Shah, Abbas I, gives to someone who he sees as being his subordinate. So, yeah, the giving of the farman is, is something that the co- company welcomed. It's something that they wanted. But this, again, tells us quite clearly about the power dynamics in the 1620s, that the company was very much subordinate or um, in a subordinate position to their Safavid, erstwhile Safavid allies. But yeah, after after the campaign and after the granting of the Farman, the company stay then in in Persia from 1622 all the way up to uh, the fall of the Safavid dynasty in 1722, and then onward until 1753, where a French fleet a French fleet uh, under the Comte d'Estaing uh, sails into the Persian Gulf and shells uh, the English factory, destroying it and then causing them to to leave permanently well semi-permanently obviously the uh, uh british empire then got back in uh you've raised a lot of important points but we'll try to uh, unpack them as we go ahead <laughs> uh so so I'm, I'm guessing the main interest of the british indian company was economic activities in in persia right it wasn't to establish really any um any any let's say uh political or like like they did in India or some other areas there. So it was mainly economic interests that they were after. Am, am, I, am I right to assume that? 
Yeah, exactly. Certainly in this early early stage of the of the company's activities, their interests were almost uniquely economic. There is often sort of mention made of this this being sort of the seed of 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 either formal empire in India or informal empire in the Gulf, and I think that that. Um, is a sort of teleological view, this idea that because this is when Europeans arrived, that if you, when you look forward 200 years, all of a sudden you have this formalised empire in India. And I think that that's, that's missing a lot of the story, which again is, is one of the things that I wanted to bring out in the book, and that is that there's no um, irresistible rise of the company to... Politi- you know, to this sort of political power or political hegemony either in India or elsewhere, that actually the company is one one of many different trading bodies and groups, whether it's the Dutch, the Portuguese, local Arab merchants, later the rise of the Omani, uh, the Omani Empire, as, as different trading networks and political powers. And that the company is, is really interested in buying and selling goods in this period uh, and feel pretty lucky if they manage to turn a decent profit on it, which, generally speaking, they tend to do. So, yes, their, their interests are definitely economic, to a certain extent political in as much as they pursue um grants and different privileges like the Farman that they get in Persia. They spend basically the next hundred years trying to get a similar uh, Farman from the Mughal emperor, which they do later in the 1720s. So nearly over a hundred years later. And basically everywhere else they go in what might be called the Persian world, the Indian Ocean Basin, they are always trying to get these grants and privileges, something that makes their trade formal, that makes their trade easier. They don't want to be seen as just another group of itinerant merchants. They also want to have a, a political recognition. And this is true in Persia. It's true in Mocha, in Yemen, where the coffee trade is is booming in the 1700s. As I say, in the Mughal Empire, it takes them over 100 years to finally finally get a similar grant. And, and essentially everywhere else they go, they try and get these political... Um, these political documents, these 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 paper, um, you know, uh, uh, Miles Ogborn talks about Indian ink. So it's like this this idea of a, uh, of a paper empire that they you know, they they get the written permission to do what it is they're doing, and then if trouble ever arises, they can always fall back on the grants that they're given. So in a sense, it's political, but only in as much as that politics supports and protects their trading interests. And uh, you, you talk about several cities where they're located. Uh, one of them is Bandar Abbas, which is a port in southern parts of Iran, and also Kerman, which is more or less, uh, my geography is horrible. I'm guessing it's in central parts of Iran, more or less central. It's it's nowhere near the sea anyhow. And that I didn't know, so that's uh, something that was really interesting to me. But can you talk about these cities? Why would they decide to, to be based there, Bandar Abbas and also Kerman? And... Uh, We'll talk about Kerman as well, because you talk about an episode where there were some attacks, let's say. Their properties were attacking the city. So I'm kind of curious to know more about these two cities and why the company's properties were attacked in in Kerman. Sure. So basically the company um, always sets itself up in the cities where the goods that they want to trade in are most easily accessible. So in Kerman, uh, in the... 
mid to late 1600s and into the 1700s, uh, Kerman wool, wool from, from, from the goats that are reared in the local region, becomes this kind of boom product for both the English and the Dutch. And they buy vast weights and quantities of it uh, to then send, be sent back to Europe, where it's turned into felt to make hats, essentially. Uh, so it's a good it's a good lining to have in your in, in your felt hat. So this becomes the kind of prestige prestige hat lining for Europe over over the course of about seventy or eighty years, uh, replacing beaver for interestingly after the beavers are basically hunted to extinction. So Kerman wool is part of this. Uh, fashion fashion trend away from from beaver fur, which is a quite fascinating world story, from North America North American beavers to goats in central Iran. So yeah, Kerman is a city. It's just it's north and east of the coast of the the Gulf Coast. Uh, it's quite remote from the sea. It's about twenty or thirty days travel. So it's not an easy it's not an easy road to take. Uh, and as I say, the company set themselves up basically to take advantage of the wool market. The company do this in other cities. Bandar Abbas is the major port where they have their uh, their factory, what's called a factory, not as in the modern sense of a factory where you manufacture things, but a factory is where your factors, your um, commercial agents live. So Bandar Abbas has the, the, the company's factory. Kerman is a place where they, they keep a house, where their merchants go uh, in the right season to purchase wool and to set up an investment with local producers so that they they get their you know the, what what they want from from the process but then they're also set up in cities like Shiraz which is famous for its wine uh, and they have their own vineyard which produces wine which they then export around uh, basically around the world and in fact that's my next project that I'm, I'm going to start working on soon uh, so they have a, a vineyard in Shiraz which is managed for them by a local Armenian they have a factory as well in Esfahan the imperial capital of the Safavid empire uh, although after 1722 that really falls into uh, uh, into disuse because of the political turmoil after the fall of the dynasty uh, so essentially Bandar Abbas is, is, is the headquarters, Kerman and Shiraz are areas of production of the major goods that the company want to buy and, and ship out. So the story of Kerman, which is where I, I start my book, is really fascinating to me for a number of reasons. First of all, because it centres around uh, one, one English merchant, a, a man called Danvers Graves, um, who was a young man in his 20s, uh, so not very much older than most of the, the students that, 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 that I teach, who was basically sent out originally to, to do the work of the company, to buy, to buy the wool, ship it to, or have it carried by camel, camel caravan to Bandar Abbas, and then for that to be shipped off to Europe. But poor old, well, old, no, your poor young Danvers finds himself caught up in... Um, basically the final throes of the rule of um, Nader Shah, one of the, you know, the, the, often called the Napoleon of Persia, one of these great uh, conquerors, you know, these real characters of, of history. Um, there's a great book by my uh, former lecturer, Michael Axworthy, about, about Nader Shah as the sword of Persia, uh, returned from his conquest of Delhi, which is the, probably the most famous famous victory he ever won. 
Uh, but Nader Shah basically by 1746, 47 has fallen into paranoia. Uh, there are various um, questions about what causes this, whether it's politics, whether it's illness. Uh, some claim also alcoholism. Uh, so Nader Shah has gone from being this uh, local strongman to general to statesman and has now fallen into dictatorship and and then madness and one of the things that he does is that he marches his army to the city of Kerman where he demands massive payments from local merchants and officials Uh, and this includes the East India Company and uh, Danvers Graves is left trying to deal with first um, the demands of local troops uh, then loans from local governors who the Shah is demanding ever larger payments from and then eventually direct threats by the Shah's troops to him, the company's property, but also the local servants who work there. And I think this is such an interesting story. First of all, because Danvers Graves actually meets Nader Shah. He gives us one of the few descriptions of the Shah in, in English. Um, he... Uh, when he can't get an official audience with the Shah because of the threats that have been made against him, uh, he pulls a very dangerous ruse by going to the the military encampment, going to the uh, yeah, going to the the edge of the tents and uh, the walls where the the Shah is encamped. And when he's not allowed in, he sees the Shah walking across a uh, a roadway some some distance away, and he starts to shout and draws attention to himself until actually the Shah comes and uh, investigates the racket where he has this meeting with the Shah where he's granted protection and uh, permission to carry out his, his business. Um, and the reason why I find Danvers so interesting, Danvers Grove so interesting, is yeah, first of all, he thinks on his feet. Uh, he's the lone Englishman in what is a, you know, a rapidly deteriorating, deteriorating uh, political situation. But all through that, his first concern is looking after the people who work for him, his local per- Persian um, servants, the, the merchants who he does business with. Uh, he works very, very hard to do as best he can to protect them. It's a very human story, His his the way that he goes about his business is 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 very is I say it's very human, and I, I I find it's quite interesting that a boy boy you are twenty year old twenty odd year old from a small village called Mickleton in Gloucestershire where his you know very middle class English family had had lived. Um, there's actually a memorial to him in the local church. The the dedication from which is uh, is in my preface to my book uh, has ended up in all the way out in Persia, surrounded by the army of the army that's just conquered India and marching is marching home. And then all of this, you know, all of this chaos happens around him, but he seems to keep quite a clear head and uh, works his way through it. So yeah, essentially as the, as the Shah's um, state deteriorates and he's eventually murdered, uh, then the political situation completely collapses and Danvers graves and his servants have to find a way out of Kerman, which eventually they do. So it's quite an interesting story, you know, what it looks like when when everything goes wrong and how you how you cope with that. Mm, it is, and he was one of the most fascinating characters that I found uh, in in your book that you talked about. 
And uh, you also talk earlier in the interview, you mentioned uh, Farman, which is not really a treaty, but maybe a royal decree or a royal command. So they were given some sort of rights or privileges. Um, and then I guess later on in 1697, if I'm not mistaken, if I've written the date here correctly, it was Sultan Shah Sultan Hussein who kind of some, so, somehow added some more provisions to this farman. Can you talk about the first one, the first farman, what it included, what kind of rights it included, and then what more provisions were added in 1697? Yeah, so the, the, the evolution of the Farman is something that I've written about, not only in my book, but uh, in an, uh, a couple of articles that I've written since as well. And how this sort of comes to be and comes to pass and uh, yeah, how it works and how it evolves. To start with in 1622-23, when the first Farman is granted by Abbas I, it's very much to do with um, the practicalities of, of trade. It's to do... Uh, you know, they're, they're interested in um, being granted freedom from customs uh, in order to repay them for uh, their part in the Battle of Hormuz. They're paid. At first, it's meant to be half the customs of the entire port of Bandar Abbas, but over time, it's realized that the Persians are never going to pay them the full half, and the, you know, and the local governor essentially can't afford to if he's going to keep up his... Uh, payments to the central treasury. So then they reduce it down to a thousand tuman, which is about two and a half thousand pounds at the time. So you know, not a bad, not a bad sum of money by anyone's uh, by anyone's guess. But even that is only then paid quite patchily, even though uh, even though the company has this right to it. And as I say, very often when local governors refuse to pay them, they bring out the piece of paper, they bring out this the physical document of the Farman, or send a copy and say, Well, you have to do this because it's in you know, it's in our it's in our agreement. It's in it's in yeah, it's it's a privilege that we're granted. So to start with, it's very much financial. It's uh, freedom from various customs. It's the right to build their factory. It's the right to actually have the you know, property in the country. Uh, and then religious concerns so if an englishman tries to convert to islam and then flees to uh flees to the persians the persians are to hand him back because you know this kind of this kind of thing is frowned upon the turn it's called turning turk in the mediterranean so i suppose turning persian in uh in, in in the Gulf region region, uh, and yeah, the same is meant to happen in reverse. If a, if a person tries to convert to Christianity and flees to the company's factory for protection or asylum, then the company is is uh, meant to hand hand this person back. So the the concerns in the original farming of sixteen twenty two were very immediate. It's very much about yeah the the commercial interests and then yeah the rights of the rights of the merchants themselves to practice their religion to practice their trade but also to have these sort of pro quo pro quo um, exchanges if anything goes wrong essentially by 1697 what we see is that actually the Farman has evolved into something that is very different and this is interesting for for two reasons. First of all, traditionally a Farman only holds uh, holds the, the, the rights and privileges contained within it for the life of whichever Shah or governor or official actually first um, makes the decree. And the East India Company's Farman is interesting because it's renewed not just 
in 16, you know, granted in 1623, and then again in 1697, it's actually re-granted by every Shah in between. So we're talking essentially about three or four iterations between the first copy that we have in 1622-3 and that copy that we then get in 1697. So what happens exactly in 1697 is not clear because these, these grants could have been added over time. Unfortunately, the records for the company in Persia are lost for that period. So it's not really clear how it how it evolves. But you get these two snapshots that are 70 years apart. The first, as I say, very much concerned with immediate, yeah, immediate issues around trade and around personal safety and freedom. And but by the time you get to 1697, you see something very different. You see uh, grants and um, conditions around the rights of children. And that's particularly interesting because children you know the children require women and one of the things that the company's records has none of is is mentions of women the only two were really mentioned throughout the many thousands of pages of of records that i looked through one of whom is the wife of one of the merchants who's already died and then she dies and her will is is part of the company's letters and the other is uh, a, a slave called um uh, enslaved woman called Mana, who is um, in inverted commas the girl of William Cordo, who's one of these merchants, uh, and she's really interesting because she's framed, either framed or is entirely guilty of, and it's not clear which of Cordo's murder. Um, so she, her story is quite interesting. I wish I knew more about Mana and her background, but uh, all we know is that uh, is that she's shipped to Bombay for trial and then never heard of again. So uh, I don't know what William Cordo was probably like as a man, but uh, if he had a, a an inverted commas girl who wasn't a wife, I don't think he was probably very nice and therefore may have got exactly what was coming to him. Um, so yeah, it's quite interesting that you have these in the Farman, you have this these these grants about women. What happens to children if they're born? Well, that means that children must have been being born to you know, mixed families, families of local Persian women or Armenian women, uh, I think in one case Jewish women, and the local Christian English merchants. So that's that's a really different uh, a really different thing from uh, whether you get paid your thousand tuman. Um, Every every year for the customs of, of of the port, that's that's a really human you know really human interest and concern. What else you see is that uh, conditions that don't work are done away with. So, for example, the company, as I said, were were fascinated by the idea of trading in and selling Persian silk. And for a variety of reasons, uh, the entrenched interest of local Armenian families and merchants, uh, the difficulty of getting silk from the uh, producing regions in the on the Caspian coast, so right in the north of the country, all the way down to the Gulf Coast, the, yeah, the expense and the difficulty of that journey and of those you know, of those transactions that needed to take place, the company just end up not being very interested in, in Persian silk. It's it, They come back to it time and time again to try and make a profit off you know, from that trade. And it's really clear every time that it's just it's just always too difficult. So in the original Farman, what you get is these rights to various amounts of silk or access to the silk markets. And by 1697, these have been dropped entirely. So no longer is this, yeah, is, is there an interest for the company to 
have a part in this trade. What you see is that every now and again, Persian shahs introduce their, their um, administrations introduce various goods for purchase for the company. So, oh, well, maybe you would like to, you know, have freedom of customs from this or from that to try and just stimulate local, local economies. And that in and of itself is quite interesting. Uh, but yeah, so, so the, the, the difference over those 70 years is quite, is quite stark. Um, you go from purely economic concerns to, uh, yeah, and I say immediate concerns over the rights over religion, to family, to local property, to uh, political, uh, sorry, not political, but legal protections, not only for the English merchants themselves, but also for their local brokers, um, the uh, Banyan, so the uh, people from the Indian subcontinent who also act as brokers and bankers to the company, um, their local translators, some of whom are Armenian, some of whom are Persian, um, one group who are, or one pair of, of them who are actually uh, half French, half Armenian, so they're quite an interesting pair of people to look at as being involved with this English company. Uh, they all get legal protection through the company. They're, they're, the Farman grants them freedom from various taxation, protection from uh, arbitrary you know, arbitrary uh, attacks on, on their person. Uh, and the company really do um, protect these people as well. They're, they use the rights from their Farman to protect them from taxation or from physical harm in, in, in quite... Um, forthright way so when one of their their brokers is attacked the first thing that the company's agent the 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 head merchant does is goes to the local governor with the fireman and says look look you can't do this he works for us uh and because he works for us as you can see in in you know in in the fireman from your own shah by the way um yeah you can't you, you you can't treat him in this way so they're very robust in their use of these in these political terms. But yeah, the Farman's evolution over the course of, as I say, not just the two copies that we have, but also over the reigns of various shahs is, is really fascinating to me because it just keeps on getting renewed over and over again and um, yeah, evolves in yeah, really quite telling and interesting ways. It tells us a lot about the company, but also about the Persians themselves. And as I said to you earlier that was a story i really wanted to tell uh and and, and another question let, let, let's talk about the people who work for the company so there were british people and 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 there were some iranians as well were there other europeans as well apart from the british people working for the company and in the records that you studied did you find any evidence that these people did regular business or had engagement with ordinary Persians uh, in the in the eighteenth century, apart from the, uh, you know, the, the, the merchants or the um, people who were in the go- in, in the government's administration. Sure. So I mean, they they trade with all sorts of people, but they tend to be. My impression, at least, is that the company are kind of wholesalers. So they sell. European cloth in in bulk to merchants who then take it up up country to the to the Iranian plateau to sell in other cities, or they buy wine or wool in bulk to then bring it back to be sold on. So I don't I don't get the impression, although 
there are some some instances where it kind of points to individual merchants doing this. That the company has its factory, which is a big building with a large warehouse where uh, fairly wealthy merchants come to trade in these, you know, in bulk in these goods. But I don't think that in 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 the the, the bazaar of Bandar Abbas there was probably a you know a, an East India Company stall or East India Company shop that people went to for sort of day to day. You know, more day to day things. I think if you wanted to buy English cloth, you bought it by the, you know, by the bale rather than by the by the yard. Um, that's my impression of that. Although, as I say, there are in instances of individual merchants being censured for doing just that. So, one one of the company's military officers, lieutenant, buys a, a job lot of rice in India and ships it to Persia, and then tries to sell it in the bazaar and. Uh, the company merchants, because uh, you could turn a good profit on rice, it turns out. Um, the company merchants are scandalised by this, and you know, you you read about how this lieutenant is censured for for daring to go out into the bazaar and sell, you know, just sort of sell rice by the bag to local people. It's obviously not the done thing. Um, in terms of the people who work for the company, it's really very multinational. It's a core of. Probably never more than ten. Very rarely more than probably five uh, English, British, later British uh, merchants who carry out the company's business. There's a garrison for the factory, which is made up sometimes of European soldiers solely, but very rarely. But often a mix of uh, English or British and soldiers who are. Uh, from uh, the subcontinent, so soldiers that come from uh, mixed Portuguese and Indian households, for example, and families, uh, or local sepoys, local local locally raised Indian Indian troops. So there's there's not just a yeah there's, there's definitely not an ethnic yeah ethnic or religious divide between the company's various employers they they employ all sorts of people they employ a local mullah a local religious um uh, cleric for some time and it's not entirely clear to me what he does day to day i don't think he's there to lead you know to lead prayers five times a day i think that he he's uh, a broker or a go between he's sort of a, a significant local figure who's paid a a handsome sum by the company to inter- intercede on their behalf. So yeah, there are there are local merchants, there are brokers who are, as I say, banyans, so people from uh, yeah of subcontinental heritage, usually from from Gujarat, uh, who live in the various ports of the Gulf. So there's significant communities in Bandar Abbas. Uh, there were significant communities in Hormuz before the the Portuguese were kicked out. Uh, and then in the work I've done on Mocha, for example, there are significant uh, groups of these same merchants who come from there. So, yes, we've got Englishmen, probably Scots and, and yeah, other Britons after uh, 1707. You have mixed race people who are usually Catholic, who are half Portuguese, half Indian. You have Indian sepoys, you have Banyan merchants, you have Armenian uh, yeah, Armenian translators who were hired. And as I say, you also have these people, uh, they're called the, the Hermit Brothers, E-H-R-M-E-T, Hermé perhaps, because their father was French, uh, who are half French, half Armenian. 
so there's yeah there, it, it, there's a real cornucopia of different different peoples and ethnicities religions whether they're catholic protestant uh hindu muslim you know you you've you've you've, you've got an awful lot going on there yeah and what was did did you find any evidence to 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 know the general attitude the sentiment of the ordinary persians towards east india and east india company so ordinary iranians or persians and local people it, it's very hard to tell i think because they were there so long and they were so established that they were just part of the furniture part of the fabric uh and therefore people did business with them as need arose um I don't think they could have been there for 120, 130 years as a, you know, as a, as a community with their own housing and buildings and all the rest of it uh, without having just been accepted as part of the community. I, I don't imagine you know, they probably mixed very much with, with local people, certainly with local officials and merchants they did. Uh, they exchanged gifts, parties. Uh, very you know, various social events happen. So Eid is always celebrated with the local governor, whereas Persian officials often send the company gifts and good wishes on Christmas. Um, so there's there's definitely an exchange there, but it's hard to know what the you know, the average people of of uh, Bandar Abbas thought about the uh, Kula Pushan, the hat wearers, who uh, you know, who also shared their their city with them. Uh, as I say, in terms of the local merchants and governors, definitely there's there's a working relationship there, even if they don't, you know, if, even if they don't get it on personally. So it's a yeah, they rub along for as I say, 120, 130 years. Mm. And there is another uh, person you talk about him with Owen Phillips, uh, and I also find him to be a very interesting character. He started as an agent in Persia, but he quickly rose to the, to the top post. So who was he, and what was his affiliation with? East India Company, and what was the story of his rise from an ordinary agent to uh, uh, to a top host in the region? So it's quite hard to tell. I'm not, I don't know a lot about Phillips's uh, background in comparison to you know, in comparison to some of the other characters. But he's he's quite an interesting man. So he starts out as a writer in I think it's 1709. So right at the bottom of the company's hierarchy. Um, and uh, he basically rises through the ranks. So Persia is quite an interesting place because very often you see that goods from India are exported by individual merchants to Persia to turn a to turn a profit. As I say, the lieutenant with his rice. This was quite common. I feel that that the the individual merchants and officials bought goods that would sell well in Persia in order to make personal profit, which they were permitted to do under the company's charter. And I think basically Phillips builds up a reputation as and, and also some ability as being a, yeah, a good uh, a good merchant, a capable yeah, a capable part of uh, uh, the yeah the, uh, of the company's sort of hi- hierarchy. Uh, and yeah, he rises to yeah finally to be the agent, which is uh, uh, the yeah the highest position that you could hold in Persia. And I think yeah, his rise through the company is basically one of yeah quite a long yeah a long career of being yeah of being seen as the good merchant. Uh, it's he gets caught up in what is yeah very unfortunate. Um, incident where he, many of the merchants in Persia die of die of a plague. Uh, we're not really sure what it is. It's described as being a bilious fever. So 
sounds great. Yeah, whatever that is. Um, and yeah, Philip seems to not only survive that, but also works his way through it. Um, he he basically does well, and I think I think the way that he then rises through the company is that once you've proven yourself capable in Persia, which, as I say, is, is, is considered quite, you know, quite an important place, but is also described in the company's writings as being an inch deal from hell. Uh, so an inch deal is a, is a, a piece of wood that's a, an inch thick. So a very, you know, quite a thin round piece of wood. So an inch deal from hell is not a lot. So if you say it's an inch deal from hell, yeah, it's, it's a really bad place to have to be. So Phillips, um, as I say, not only survives, but sort of thrives in his time in Persia and then uses that experience. But also, as I say, yeah, the, the um, probably the kudos of having survived so long to you know, uh, build up his, his career in the company further from that. But as I said, I don't, I don't know much about his background. I don't know as much about where he was from. And uh, so my, my, when I read the book, my impression is that East Indian Company in Iran was not as notorious as it was in other countries like like um, India or I, I think in the email that I exchanged a couple of months ago with you that I said that I read this book, uh, Empire of Influence. Well, all those other neighboring countries that they had established their uh, offices there. So it seemed that, as you mentioned, for 120 years they were in Iran, but they were not really, then their, their, their main interest was economic interest. So it wasn't into military expansion or anything of that sort. And that's why it sort of uh, didn't develop that negative reputation that it did in other countries. Um, yeah, so, so so Persia, again, this is why the, the story of Persia is so interesting to me, um, is that, that there's not this reputation of the company as this kind of rapacious overlord that uh, you, know, you get from India and elsewhere. They never they never gain that kind of political political influence in, in Iran. Later, the British Empire, once it becomes a far more formalized body, and uh, you know, obviously the company is, is a part of that, um, they exert a lot of influence over, over the Qajar dynasty, certainly when it comes to uh, constant British concerns around the safety of India from the encroachment of the Russian Empire and Iran is very much uh, a part of that story. But certainly before 1800, I think the, the, the company as a rule is, outside of India certainly, um, is, is very much concerned with these, these, these economic questions. As I say, there's, there's an interesting social and political um, exchange that goes on. But as I say, there, there, there's probably never more than 10 Englishmen in Persia at any given time. So the idea that you're going to be able to exert the kind of influence that they do in, in India, for example, is, is never going to happen. It's yeah, <laughs> be very, very difficult to, to try and dominate a, an empire of 9 million people with 10 merchants who are busy buying wool in the mountains. I think, I think it would, uh, uh, yeah, we, we, there's a very, very different story here. And that's why, as I say, I think, you yeah, the, the, the book is so important because it's telling this story about the company, not not with this teleological view of, of, of sort of domination and empire as the, as, the, as the end point, but that actually the company, the company leave Persia more or less 
uh, out uh, by being forced by by so the destruction of the factory by the French. Certainly, the economic importance of Persia for the uh, for the company has waned by that point, but uh, it's hard to know what would have happened had the Comte d'Estaing not sailed into the Gulf and destroyed the factory. Um, is there uh, before we end this interview? I'm, I'm keen to know if there's what's the next step, what's the next project you're working on. I know that you have a very exciting episode ahead of you, uh, an exciting journey. So I'm, I'm I'm really interested to know more about that and also the projects you're thinking of uh, doing in the next couple of years. Sure. Yeah. No. I'm uh, <laughs> I'm preparing myself to move to uh, Tokyo, Japan, Tokyo University of Foreign Studies where I will be uh, completing a two-year fellowship uh, through the the Japan Society for the Promotion of Science, uh, looking at the trade and exchange of Persian wine and Persian wine culture throughout the Indian Ocean world. So this was something that I touch on in the book, that the company produces its own wine in Persia and sells it and gives it as gifts basically everywhere they go. It's it's, it's, It's a huge part of what they what they do in Persia is maintaining a vineyard and selling the wine. And yet other than some sort of very famous remnants, for example, the name of Shiraz as a grape, we know very, very little about the trade in Persian wine. Very recently, Rudy Mate wrote a a history of, uh, uh, history of alcohol in alcohol. In, in the world. Yeah, um, I think I have and, the book. I haven't read it yet. The angel tapping on the wine shop's door. Is it? I can't remember the it's, details. Uh, right. Yeah, when the angels knock at the, which is that famous Persian poem. Yeah, well, I can't remember yeah. that. <laughs> Last yeah, the night, angels knocked at, at the tavern's the, door. Yeah, the wine house door. Yeah, wine shop, wine house. So, yeah, no, he's, he's, he's sort of um, telling a bit of that story in terms of consumption. But basically what I'm trying to do is, is not only trace the... Uh, the archival record of the sale of wine, not by just by Europeans, but by local merchants, but also the cultural impact of this. So Willem Floor, very rightly and, and quite famously, has said that you know, in comparison to India or the Ottoman Empire, that Persia was dirt poor. And in many ways it was. It was a, a far less economically significant place. But what I... And, well, and others in this idea of the Persian world are arguing, is that, yes, you're right, financially speaking, trade in Persia was nowhere near as lucrative as India. You know, the population was a, you know, was a small percentage of the size. Uh, you know, what they produced was much, was, was much less. But the idea that you could sail from Bandar Abbas to the court of Fran Arai in what's now Thailand, Ayutthaya at the time, and give him a chest of Persian wine and rose water, and that not only would this be acceptable to him, but he would know what it was, tells you an awful lot about trade and exchange. But but how does it get there? How does, how does the king of Thailand of Siam know where Persia is, care where Persia is, uh, and certainly, why does he care about being given wine or rose water as a gift? In fact, I did some research recently preparing for this about the East India Company's settlement in um, Vietnam, where rose water was a standard part of the gifts that they gave. And 
the vast majority of that, I, I, I believe, I hope to find out, was produced in Persia as well. So not only am I looking at the archival record of, of where it was bought and sold by, by European companies, uh, but I also hope to look at museum collections of the wine bottles themselves, uh, rose water shakers. The Persian wine bottles have a very distinctive shape, and you can see it in, in artwork throughout the Safavid period. There's these beautiful shaped bottles with, with long, narrow necks. Um, and they turn up everywhere. They're in museum collections in Europe, North America, around the Indian Ocean world. Um, I haven't spotted any in my my to-be-host country in Japan yet, but uh, I, I'm really hoping I find one uh, because it just goes to show that, as I say, the cultural impact, the cultural importance of Persia, of Persian wine specifically and Rosewater more, yeah, as part of that uh, is not just economic, it's also stylistic, it's artistic, it's cultural. Um yeah, there's 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 a big story to be told there, I think, and uh, yeah, I'm going to spend the two year next two years trying to tell it. Sounds like a very very fascinating project, and I certainly hope to be able to talk to you about your uh, future monograph book when, whenever it's out. <laughs> yeah, no, I look forward to talking to you about it too. Peter, good. Thank you very much for this fascinating conversation. Really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure.